This is Catherine Cruz. It is December 22nd, the last Aloha Friday before Christmas. Mahalo for joining us. Hawaii Talks on the conversation. Today we talk peace during a time of global strife. Those working with the University of Hawaii's Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution offer ways to navigate these emotionally charged times. We hear about public health risks as we work through the recovery post-wildfires, the environmental, mental, and physical risks. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The United Nations passed a resolution calling for more humanitarian aid in Gaza as the death toll is now more than 20,000. The U.S. and Russia abstained from the vote and the resolution does not mention a ceasefire or pause. This month here in Honolulu, we saw anti-Semitic graffiti pop up in neighborhoods, equating images of a swastika with the Star of David. We talked to Maya Satoro from the University of Hawaii Spark and Matsunaga Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution and with the nonprofit Seeds of Peace. We also talked with uh, Punihe Lipe, who is with the UH Native Hawaiian Place of Learning Advancement Office. Lipe starts us off. Something that we've been talking about on campus has been about the difference between, you know, individuals and larger issues or larger governments or larger religions and recognizing how we can find our common humanity first and, you know, understanding one another as individuals, but also as our, you know, as our small communities, our small organizations that are, and kind of trying to understand the more complete and complex stories of who we are. I think there's a lot of master narrative building and sharing happening right now that doesn't allow for the more intricate stories of who we are as, as people in the small communities. I think that's helping to drive some of this. But it's also a larger issue, right, that's not particular to this acute situation where we are not interested in getting to know each other's stories anymore and not really having a lot of those tools. So that's something we've been thinking a lot about and how we help our campus with those tools anyway, despite the situation, but just generally speaking. And, you know, I know we've had reports where there are some students in the classrooms that raise concerns about, you know, feeling uneasy because of either what was being taught or presented in the classroom. You know, um, you know, I was down there at the uh, rally down at Ala Moana Beach Park, where it was an incredible out of uh, folks that were uh, sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians over there. It's sad because there's so much grief all around and, and you just want to be able to maybe ratchet down some of the rhetoric and, you know, particularly now during this time. Yes, for sure. But I think it also, again, goes back to trying to get to know, you know, each other in, in real and authentic ways. And, and making the space for that to happen on, on all sides of any issue. And that is not something we're particularly good at anymore, I think, for a number of reasons, you know, including the way social media has, <laughs> has taken away some of those skill sets that we once had, or, you know, maybe we had, or our parents or grandparents had of actually sitting down and talking story with someone and getting to know them. I don't think it's impossible, but we have to practice those, those things in pretty intentional ways these days. Are you hearing anything from students and faculty, you know, about the tensions in the recent months? I mean, yes. And, and, and there are many issues that, you know, we focus on and think about, focusing on Hawaii in particular, and how we are constantly at a number of crossroads and intersections of issues and also opportunities being here in this place that we can learn from. And Maya, jump in here. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. how are you looking at this situation? You know, we've had the recent debate of graffiti and concerns about, you know, what folks are feeling and hearing on campus. And how do we ratchet things down? Yes. You know, when I think about the graffiti in Hawaii, of course, I want to say that that is not who we are as a community. You know, we at the Matsunaga Institute, Seeds of Peace, and, and the university in general are really deeply saddened by the ongoing rise of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism on the continent, globally. And, you know, so we condemn all forms of such hatred. And in the shadow of this conflict, 
we do feel that the university can guide and nourish peacebuilding leadership to ensure that those expressions are neither condoned nor repeated. So, you know, we utilize you know, restorative justice and think about nonviolent social change and nonviolent communication. When we at the Peace Institute talk about how we should address this complex conflict, we focus on a few things. One, encouraging active listening and empathy in the classroom, fostering in respectful and open learning environments. So, and remembering to first share the expectations and processes of nonviolent communication. We emphasize to professors and students that we should try to be solutionary where possible. And what this means um, is perhaps to highlight restorative narratives and all of the many courageous peace and bridge building efforts that are out there, um, rather than simply being mired in the conflict. You know, I tell students that right now people in the region are sort of in survival mode and empathy is impossible. So it's our kuliana, it's our responsibility to illuminate their experience with one another, to build understanding that is multifaceted so that we're not all too broken and narrow in our thinking, so that when there is the mental, emotional, and community space that opens up for healing, when healing becomes possible, we can begin to engage in that. So conflicts like these, they exist not only in the region, but of course, with distant others and all of us have a role to play then in being allied to make sure that we're not contributing to disinformation, to make sure we take the time to understand the complexities of this conflict and hold space for competing truths. Um, I often encourage professors to not do debate these days. If anything, maybe structured academic controversy, which is where you kind of illuminate one side through poem, pulpit speech, letter, journal, whatever, something emotional preferably that helps us to empathize and engage in storytelling beyond our own umbilical stories. And then you kind of move to the other side. And in the next breath, you illuminate another perspective. And then when you think about your own perspective, you draw from more than one side or you find the points of intersection between the sides, you know, so this requires deep listening or what we call seeds of these double listening, which is where we're listening for the truths as well between the words and behind the words, the emotion it enables us to kind of lead with love and compassion. And this also then makes room for our community and our students who are grieving for and supporting both Israelis and Palestinians. Um, I really do also encourage us to support the movement building of citizens, especially young people who are protesting in the streets as that is meaningful political engagement, but then also to encourage them to engage in positive peace building, taking actions whether that is to, you know, share the story of a distant other, whether that's supporting nonprofits that are engaging in peace building, whether that is um, supporting their own community, you know, to ensure that we don't feel stuck and helpless. We can, by taking some kind of action, by inspiring greater empathy, knowledge, and commitment to peace in our own beloved community, we can avoid the kind of grief that turns into helplessness, right? We can enliven a sense of hope, and that's antidote to despair. So I think that action is, is sometimes just about broadening perspectives and Oh, yes, um, hopefully there will be room for constructive dialogue around this enduring conflict. But also the idea is to help, in my view, young people especially um, build peace within. Well, you know, I know there is that dilemma of free speech, you know, on campus, which is very important and, and we need to protect that. But it, it is dismaying, though, to know that folks may feel threatened or fearful. It, it has been a very difficult time, you know, with all the headlines and you've got diplomatic channels being worked. And, you know, sometimes what you see in the headlines, you know, doesn't tell the whole story. That's certainly true. And, you know, speaking of those diplomatic channels, I mean, 
one of the things that we have to keep in mind in order to not be dismayed is that that this work has to be undertaken in many different ways from a multi-faceted series of directions. So we need those diplomatic channels. We need the top-down efforts. We also need people-to-people diplomacy and the ground-up effort. We need journalists to share stories that are non-inflammatory and that highlight, again, those solutionary capacities. We also need educators to help to illuminate the various things that have been tried in this long conflict and what has worked and how we can layer upon that to transform the existing conflict into something hopefully that is feasible and productive in the future. My point is, I guess, that sometimes when we consider solutions, we think in very linear and narrow ways and with a conflict this complex and multi-layered understanding, we have to make room for kind of not only thinking that is diverse and nuanced, but that allows for the participation of all of us moving forward to go from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. And And if all of us can be upstanders and contribute what we can towards peace, then again, that is the antidote to despair, but it also means that even something seemingly intractable like this, perhaps, can be transformed. Not all conflicts can be fully resolved, but they can all be transformed. And I think not simply see the depths to which our species can plunge, but also the heights to which we can rise. Anything else that you want to add? You know, I mean, I know we've, we've got the holidays coming up. You feel for the folks that are in these, you know, war-torn areas in survival mode. Any other thoughts you have? I want to honor the difference between those of us who are you know, one word, I don't know if it's the right word, is privileged to not be in a war zone and what we can do with that blessing and that space that we have to recognize and to support however we want to support folks who are in that war zone. But that, you know, not being there um, and being here in Hawaii instead gives us an opportunity to, as Maya was saying, you know, to really build peace in different ways, but also recognizing that sometimes we don't have all those tools, (laughs) right? And so how do we really give space to those who are leading in those areas to share with us some of those tools. Um, you know, and, and one thing you were saying about the classroom is, I think what we hear from students, I mean, Maya and I have been hearing this from students for years, Maya longer than me, but I remember sitting with Maya several years ago listening to students talk about a different situation, but, but still yearning for models from their professors, from their teachers, from, you know, people who they see as senior and mentor to them, yearning to see people who have very different perspectives, opposing positions on certain kind of topics, be able to sit in respect of one another as common human beings and to learn from one another's perspectives, not necessarily to agree, but to be able to deeply listen and to have, you know, the space to share. And I think that's one thing that, you know, we can continue to strive to model um, for our students so that they see it's possible. And, and we know it is possible. I mean, I think also, but to also recognize, like, we can also do things to, to prevent or heal conflict here in our spaces, in our homes, in our communities, in Hawaii. We have that opportunity every day, even in, in small and large ways, um, you know, and grow and, and kind of radiate that out, as one of my mentors likes to say, you know, from the small spaces that we are in even while there is larger conflicts going on elsewhere. Um, I don't think we have to feel hopeless in that sense because there is lots of opportunity um, to do that right here at home in Hawaii. Any final thoughts, Maya? Only that this conflict will have long-standing reverberations and it may still be a long time before it is over, if it ever can be over, given all of the trauma But what we can do is reinvest in positive peace every day, little by little, not simply in using our guiding star, but also our near star to sort of navigate to a future that is more just, that is more peaceful, that has uh, more understanding. And, And I 
definitely want our community here in Hawaii and, you know, sort of the broader collection of voices that are feeling grief to make sure that they know that they are part of the solution, that they can be upstanders and, and you know, work on building peace both within, between, and, and uh, for others, as Punihei says from home, wherever you are, wherever you're standing, with the ripples going outward and and making ultimately a positive impact. And so I hope that this holiday season, people feel a sense of both hope and real determination to not let conflict simmer and boil over, but in fact, to be part of the solutions. And that was Maya Satoro of the Matsunaga Peace Institute and Punihei Alipe of the Native Hawaiian Place of Learning Advancement Office. Lipe is organizing a series of events next month uh, to mark National uh, the Day of Racial Heal- Healing and to reflect on the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Unipa'a. We'll have a link on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Tune in to HPR One at 11 a.m. on Christmas morning as Manoa Valley Theater presents the iconic classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Reimagined as a vintage radio play, complete with live sound effects. We'll journey to Bedford Falls to meet George and Mary, and we'll find out if Clarence, Angel Second Class, will finally earn his wings. That's 11 a.m. Christmas morning on HPR One, sponsored by Nohea Gallery. Support for HPR comes from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, committed to a sustainable economy, supporting toxin-free food producers, arts education, and programs that develop creative, problem-solving leaders. Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us this morning for our reality check. She's got a story uh, about Red Hill. The bulk of the fuel draining is complete, but water tests are still finding petroleum hydrocarbons in some homes. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. And, you know, we don't know where these hydrocarbons are coming from, right? Right. Yeah. For many months, the Navy's test results have showed um, supposedly low levels of total petroleum hydrocarbons. That could be a potential uh, clue that there's fuel in the water, although not definitive. Um, But the levels are below the state's environmental action level. So that's not necessarily a safety threshold per se, but the level at which the Navy needs to do something. Um, if it were to hit that point, but all the levels have been under that. Um, And so residents have been concerned. They're saying they're still sick. They have new or recurring health symptoms and they see oily sheens on their water. They've been concerned, but the Navy keeps saying the water is safe because the levels of TPH are are below uh, what regulators say it should be below. Um, So there's been this conflict. And so some of these complaints, I think, came in right as the military was uh, starting the draining of those tanks. So we weren't sure if there was a correlation, but, you know, there were no major spills or anything like that. So, you know. Right. Not that we know of. So right. it's it's a mystery as to what is causing this. Um, the Of course, the Red Hill well that was contaminated has been closed. The Navy is not pumping that well. The water comes from a clean well, the Wyava shaft, um, that's further away. Um, But they never replaced the pipelines that that contaminated water went through in 2021. They never replaced a lot of the hot water heaters in people's homes. So there are concerns that maybe there's residual contamination that was absorbed in the plastic uh, PVC pipes. Who knows? It's it's being investigated now. Yes, and and the EPA, you know, was able to uh, produce a report that looked into some of these complaints. Uh, but again, they're below the action level, so it's not like someone can require them to do anything. 
Right. So the Navy has been looking at these results and saying, well, everything's pretty much fine. We don't have to do anything because it's under that EAL threshold. Um, but the EPA did just come out with a report this week looking at the same results and saying, wait a minute, we think this warrants further examination. So now they're asking the Navy to um, test further and to share those test results with the EPA and the state health department and to also continue testing past a previously agreed upon target date of February of next year. So that was the date at which the Navy was supposed to be kind of off the hook from this mass testing effort. Now EPA is saying, we want you to keep going. And the residents want at a minimum, I think, right, to at least have those water heaters replaced if need be. They do. That's been a long-standing concern, and I've heard from many people that they've asked and they've been declined. Um, one person told the EPA that they they asked for a new water heater, and they were told it would only be replaced if if it literally couldn't heat water anymore, regardless of what might be in it. Um, so I think the residents are going to keep pushing for that, especially now feeling fortified by this EPA report. And you did check with the state health department as well. I did. Um, so they they only regulate water at the source, so from the well. And after it goes through the distribution system and it went into people's homes, that's not really their kuleana anymore. So I spoke with the chief of the safe drinking water branch. He agreed with residents that the Navy should have replaced all those water heaters. Um, but the DOH does not have the authority to order the Navy to do that. Okay, so it's uh, just a matter of uh, following up, I guess, to see, uh, you know, if these levels remain low or if there's a, a, a need for more action. Right. Yeah. The Navy will keep testing and hopefully we'll, we'll get an update from our regulators at the, the state and federal level. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, how this all plays out, because if they're going to stop in February, um, this monitoring, you know, hopefully that, that they uh, extend it. Right. I think that's what residents are hoping for. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can, her, you can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. If you excel at business development, have media sales experience, and love public radio, HPR has the job opportunity for you. Our corporate relations team is seeking candidates for a corporate relations associate. This is an opportunity to build media strategies to help organizations bring their message to our audience. Apply by December 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. You know, all this week we've been focusing on environmental research around the Maui wildfires that scientists at the University of Hawaii are involved in. The faculty applied for and received a number of rapid response grants to focus on everything from nearshore waters to agriculture. Today we close out the week and we get some context from a couple of public health faculty members. Rosanna Weldon and Catherine uh, Perkle are with the Office of Social Work and Public Health Studies. We start with Associate Professor Perkle. Obviously, the environmental health side is very important, but there are many, many other health concerns. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about the mental health concerns. This is a very traumatic event, um, both at an individual and a collective level. And so the long-term mental health concerns are very significant. I think something that hasn't been discussed much is injury. Many people were injured, and this is going to affect them for their lifetimes. We even have have considerations around health services and how to organize our health services best to meet people's needs, especially as people have been displaced. So there's a lot, and this is just a handful of public health concerns. And before we even jump in to say some of the environmental health concerns, 
in public health, we always say that the foundation of people's health, we have to make sure that basic needs are met. And those basic needs are food, water, sanitation, and shelter. And we're in a situation now where we aren't certain that we've met people's needs in terms of shelter. We don't have permanent housing. We have concerns about whether people can afford their food. We have water advisories. So it's really critical to keep in mind before we talk about additional public health concerns that the first thing we need to do and the most urgent thing we need to do right now is meet people's basic needs. This has just underscored how important public health is. You know, we've just come out of this pandemic and, you know, infectious disease. I mean, gosh, who would think that this would turn the world over on its head? You know, and now we're dealing with this natural disaster. No one anticipated this risk or this threat from fires. And and you're right, though, the mental health that's tied in with, you know, this double whammy, right, coming out of the pandemic and that health crisis and economic crisis. And now we're still in an economic crisis and we have environmental concerns as well. Right, and there's some evidence that the crisis, it's not just now, it can have lasting effects, it can have generational effects even, so it's really important to bring in all the right people, do all the right research, and inform the public as much as we can. We gave a presentation mostly aimed at healthcare professionals. That was really our intention, although this talk is now public. It was in collaboration with HiFi. HiFi is the Hawaii Public Health Institute. And so, yes, we felt it was important to get some messaging out on a broader level, and so did HiFi. And so that's what we felt we could contribute at the time. Of course, you know, there was no going into Maui. There was nothing many people could do at that time. And so information was the best way that we could spread awareness. And what were you folks hearing from those out in the field? Initially, this started off with a conversation between me and some friends, to be honest, people that I was worried about and talking with them. And the concerns that were raised was we don't understand the risks. And then I think Dr. Weldon and I started talking and we were talking with members in our own networks. And this was coming up repeatedly of okay, we know environmental contaminants are out there, we're seeing it in the news, but what does that mean? And so that initial presentation was really directed at healthcare providers who were struggling to understand how to answer patient questions, as well as many who had been affected by the fires themselves and were curious about their own health. Did a lot of these healthcare professionals, I don't know, were they out in the field in, in some of these areas? Oh, I mean, some of them absolutely were out in the yeah. field. We've heard from some nursing associations, some nursing groups that have reached out to us. And they, first of all, had no time. <laughs> they just mm-hmm. had no time to think about environmental health concerns at that moment. They were worried about them, but they had to address all of the basic needs first. And they just were working around the clock yeah, I mean, I, I did talk to a doctor who just flew over there and was just kind of doing triage on the streets right. with homeless people. And, you know, he was saying, oh, we were testing for COVID and they were all testing positive for COVID. And so it was just kind of the stress, you know, of the just being out there, boots on the ground before the infrastructure and, you know, the agencies kind of got in place where people were just there to help each other out, I think, Mm -hmm, to get through the first early days, early weeks. As far as then the information that was coming out, you know, they were saying, well, we've tested, you know, there are high levels of arsenic and lead and and this, that, and the other in the ash. And they were putting out guidelines as Mm -hmm. to, you know, take precautions. Actually, long before they knew the levels, those precautions were in place. I mean, once you have a, a disaster or fire situation like this, you know that there's going to be some sort of contamination, chemical concerns. And so, the guidelines have always been in place to wear protective equipment, masks and goggles and gloves and boots, but largely just to keep people out of the area until we could figure out some of the answers. That was one of the more important messages in the beginning. A number of the scientists and the researchers that we've talked to said, oh, yeah, you know, we've hired people or we're going out in the field. We're doing regular testing, collecting water samples, that kind of thing. And they may have questions about how concerned should I be being in the water. That has come up. Both of us were asked directly by some folks who were doing field work in the water. And yes, there are some concerns. Again, I think I want to go back to some of what we were saying initially is that a lot of what we're seeing right now is preliminary. And it's really important to understand how complex the situation is from an environmental health perspective. We are talking about very complex mixtures 
of metals and man-made chemicals. We are also talking about the fact that we have a term we like to use, environmental media. We have things in ash, we have things in water, we have things in air. And so it's very, very hard to provide advice to folks in such a complex situation other than to say it's important to take certain precautions. And then in talking with some of these researchers, they said, well, you know, there are signs out there the Department of Health has posted saying that, you know, at your own risk, right? If it's getting into the water there, you know, by the harbor, you know, because of the runoff, we've had so much rain, you know, just in the recent weeks. The route of exposure is important to consider, but but the reality is you're being exposed by many different ways, especially if you're going in the water. They tell you very explicitly, if you're going into the area, do not eat. You do not want your food to be contaminated by anything, ash or anything that's in the environment in the area. And really important is you don't want to track anything that's in the area of concern back to your loved ones at home. And so it's really important to think about the steps that you take to protect anybody at home who really shouldn't be exposed. And that brings us into a conversation of vulnerable populations Mm -hmm. and pregnant women, children, people who have health conditions and the elderly, they are very vulnerable to any toxicants. And so you really want to be sure that you're protecting them. In talking with the firefighters, for example, right, those first responders, they're out there, you know, they're battling everything from the fumes to, you know, the dust and the flames. And, you know, you worry about their mental health, too. So I don't know if you had a chance to talk to any of those first responders at all. No, that's outside of the type of work we do. But there are special public health concerns for occupational hazards like that, and they are more likely to have higher exposure levels than the general population, generally. What's the best takeaway you can give for folks out there who are working in that area? Because people are, you know, still going through their properties right now. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's important to take a step back and help to explain some of what people are actually hearing from media outlets. When you hear something like, oh, we're detecting metals and ash, or we're measuring particulate matter in the air, maybe it's important that people first understand what they're hearing in these messages. And that is where I believe that we can really provide some information to kind of clarify when they say, okay, we're monitoring particulate matter of 2.5 microns and below. What does that mean? There are several things that are important for the public to know. Right now, the kind of information that we're getting back is preliminary. And so DOH and and other folks who are involved in the testing are thinking about these things carefully. There are sampling strategies in place for particular reasons. And right now what they're trying to assess, at least in the ash, is the big picture of which toxicants are of concern at high levels right now. So even if you don't see a detection, that doesn't mean it's not there. It's just that it may not be as high as some other things. And the things that are being detected, there are some ways that scientists can separate things that are naturally occurring from things that are results of the fire. And so we're still in that early days of really sifting through the data and figuring out what is meaningful to health risk. In the absence of more detailed data and what this means then? Do you just say, be careful, take precautions? Yes, there are some really specific precautions that are important to take, especially with regard to the ash. We started off talking a little bit earlier about vulnerable populations, and we mentioned children. And I think this is important to highlight, especially when you're talking about something like ash, which can settle on surfaces and on the floors. If you have children, say, playing on the floors and putting their hands to their mouths, they're much more likely to ingest that ash and become exposed to the various contaminants that are in there, and there are some very high levels in that ash. The ash, without question, is toxic. And so doing things like washing children's hands very often, trying to keep your surfaces and your floors clean, especially in those areas that are adjacent to the impacted areas, so where there still are structures where people are still living in residences, but they're close to areas where there be ash and dust coming from the fires. It's really, really important to try to keep your surfaces and floors clean to minimize not only your contact with the ash, but also in particular these vulnerable populations like children. The reason children are particularly vulnerable is because they're developing. So some of their metabolic processes aren't at a place where they can detoxify as readily as adults can. And their bodies and their brains are developing. And so they can be at critical developmental windows where these toxicants can have a larger effect. 
that can last a lifetime. I guess in terms of the the final thoughts is recognizing that probably in terms of the most immediate and long-term risks are, is around the ash, for sure, in terms of the fact that it's, you know, when you first have fires, you have smoke, but that's gone away. We don't have that risk necessarily. But the ash gets in the air, it gets in the water, it gets into the soil. And so it is a complex thing to be paying attention to. It is a major concern because of the fact that it is just omnipresent in the environment. And it potentially has concentrated any of the contaminants that were in the larger structures that have burned. Right. And they do have a number of air monitoring stations mm-hmm. strategically placed around you know, the island and I think even on some of the other islands. And so that's just kind of good indicators as the information gets out you know, to help us judge what the risks are. And that's real-time data. I don't know if you've been to those websites, but you can see real-time air monitoring data, not just for particulate matter, but for certain chemicals as well. So basically what they're saying is that if, if you're seeing that it's orange, red, or above, so they basically color-coded the particulate matter, and if it's green, okay, air quality is good, and then if you see anything other than green, it's indicative of concerns. And so they are saying that if it's anything but green, you should be staying indoors, you should be limiting the time that your children go outside, you should set your air conditioners on the recirculate. So there is information out there about what to do if there are concerns about air quality. And it's not necessarily the fires that can elevate the air quality on any particular day. There's a caveat on the website right now that there was wood chipping happening near one of the air monitoring stations that affected the results. And so there are many things that can affect the local air quality around any particular monitor. Gosh, it's a lot to know. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you both for carving out time and and sharing what you know here. Thank you for having us. That was UH Associate Professor Catherine Perkle and Public Health Specialist Rosanna Weldon, who have been discussing the public health risks involved with the aftermath of the Maui wildfires. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, committed to the conservation and protection of water resources for Oahu. Learn more about how to reduce water waste at boardofwatersupply.com. It's been a big year for celebrity memoirs. Everyone has picked up the pen from Britney Spears to Prince Harry, but not all celebrity memoirs are created equal. I don't want the memoir that someone else in the room could have written. If someone could watch you and write the same thing you wrote down, then what is your added perspective? The best celebrity memoirs of the year and what we learned from them. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Hollywood is full of families with multiple generations working in the industry. The Fondas, the Baldwins, and the Barrymores are some of the first that come to mind. Here in Hawaii, we have the Richmonds. Tahiti-born Leo Richmond got the dynasty started when he appeared in Mutiny on the Bounty with Marlon Brando in 1962. His son, Branscombe, and grandson, Fai Rai, are in the family business today. Branscombe has appeared in hundreds of films and TV shows in his 50 years in the industry, and Fai Rai made his directorial debut at the Hawaii International Film Festival this year. The father-son duo has a new movie coming out on Christmas Day, The Adventure Epic, Kangaroo Kids. The Conversations Russell Subiono sat down with the Ridgemans in our studio to talk about their family legacy in film. After Mutiny on the Bounty, did he do other films as well? Oh, yeah. Wake of the Red Witch, Devil at Four O'Clock, Adventures in Paradise, on and on and on. You know, Duke Hanamoka's movie. Remember that one? Was that Wake of the Red Witch? I think it was with John Wayne. So what's your earliest memory of your dad working on set? Were you older or were you still pretty young? No, I was five. Oh, you're five when it started. Oh, okay. You know what's really interesting when you're five? You notice there's donuts on set. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
and milks in a container that are like this that you only see in school. And I was too young to go to school, so I thought that was really cool. So as a kid, I was working in the movies with my dad. Devil at Four O'Clock, you know, with Spencer Tracy, Frank Sinatra. And then, you know, you do John Wayne movie like Donovan's Reef. Right, right. Donovan's, Donovan's Reef. Reef. That's right. your first credit on IMTB. Is, is it? Is Donovan's wow. Reef. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But didn't he, he also did like Planet of the Apes? Well, that was after. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. My dad came home with the gloves and the the club. I thought that was so cool. Here, son. <laughs> and uh, Fight Eye, I know you grew up on set as your dad was in his career as well. When did you figure out that your grandfather was a veteran of the film industry? When did you figure out that your dad was this well-known actor? Five days ago. <laughs> no, uh, um, you know what's an interesting uh, a, a little quick tidbit. <clears throat> my dad came to my fifth or fourth grade, whatever, Halloween carnival at my elementary school dressed as the clown that he played in. He came directly from the set of uh, Batman, Batman Returns. Batman Returns, yeah. And then he came to my uh, carnival in that clown outfit. They let him uh-huh. go with the wardrobe and the makeup and everything. And that was kind of like, that was sort of like one of the very first, like, wait, people make this? And then I went to the set of that movie on the Warner Brothers lot, and I remember seeing Danny DeVito in his, ch- in his chair, and he, they were putting in the teeth, uh, the penguin teeth. I think I was probably like seven or six or something. And that was sort of like my introduction of like the magic behind the whole thing. To answer your question, I knew pretty early on that my grandfather worked in the, in the film industry because my dad had photos all over the house on the walls, <laughs> photo books of like stuff. So he'd have all these books, picture books with like my grandfather in different movies and then signed autographs from different sets and stuff. And I never actually knew my grandfather because he died before, yeah, before he was born. I right. was born. And then later when I was like 14, 15, my grandfather's best friend Augie. He came and lived with us for several Mm -hmm. years. We had a big property with multiple houses on it growing up. And so this guy came and he liked to watch classic movies with me. He would tell me, ah, you know, Bob Hope is a crook. (laughs) No, he said he was cheap. He said he was cheap. (laughs) And uh, we'd watch all these movies. And this old man, Augie Nevis, was in those movies with my my grandfather. From Oahu. Yeah. Yeah, and so I would ask him, I would say, what was my grandfather like? And he would tell me about how great of a man he was. And so I got to know him in that way. I know you spent a lot of time on set when your dad was in film, but you originally wanted to be an athlete, right? You yeah, originally I have a failed baseball career. <laughs> Went right down the two. Well, hey, I, I wasn't going to put it that way. Hey, Richmond, <laughs> you know what? You can hit and you can field, but you're slow. You can't break up the double play. And that was it. You have hundreds of credits to your name on IMDb. Can you talk about the kind of work that you put in to be successful <laughs> at a time when there weren't a lot of opportunities for minorities in Hollywood? Listen, this story is easy. Affirmative action came to Hollywood. You had to hire 18% minorities in all facets of the industry, from the gate guard to the tour guide at Universal. Mm-hmm. You need to have 18%. What is a minority? A person of color, a woman, mm-hmm. a handicapped person. And that's what they were saying. So I happen to be a person of color. Now, I was a good dancer. So I did all those disco dance scenes, mm-hmm. right? And I was lucky. And then what happened was I'm on a movie called Paniolo, Castaway Cowboy at Disney. And the stunt double for Gregory Ciara was late or didn't show up or whatever it was. Stunt coordinator Royden Clark, who was James Garner's stunt double, said, Richmond, put on these clothes. You're going to run in front of the stampede of cows. And I looked at my check and I went, wow, 210 bucks. And I was working as an extra for 37 something. Right. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, if I could do this every day, I could make $20,000. That was my goal to make 20 grand. As we went on in affirmative action, I started working all the time, man. And in Hollywood, the bad guy has to be taller than the lead. Otherwise, the lead looks like he's a bully when he's taking out the bad guys. Mm -hmm. So that's how I kind of got in there. And uh, as they were lighting me on fire and throwing me down the steps, they said, hey, Richmond, can you do these five lines? And then light him on fire and throw him down the steps. And they said, oh, he can say words, right? It was a big deal. Stuntman didn't really talk. And they say he can say words. And that's how this whole thing started. Right place, right time, went after it. You got to hustle, man. If you yeah. want it, you got to go get it. Next year makes 50 years for me. 74, man. 74 to 24. Wow. 50 years in 50 the industry. Years. Went wow. like that fast. That's incredible. Fight Eye, you've had your own journey in the industry I saw a social media post you made a few years ago where you were asking how to get a film into HIF. Yeah. And 
in the time since I've seen some of your short films that you've made here in the islands with local actors, then this year, the film that you direct, Decade of the Dead, it screens at HIF. And now another film that you directed, Kangaroo Kids, is set for release later this month. What's it been like for you to carve out a place for yourself in the industry that your dad and your grandfather have made their mark on? I'll just go with what my dad said, too. You know, it's just constantly, constantly hustling. I can't really say in any other way, you know. I just kept making stuff, and I just kept trying to put it out there. And, you know, you just get a lot of doors closed on your face. And that's probably a great gift because then it just builds fire. Right, <laughs> right. So it's like, all right, you close the door. Okay, where's the window, right? What can I do to break through this door? And still, I think, you know, you may have to do that all the way up until the end. You got to go out kicking and fighting, you know, because it's not like anybody just hands you anything. You know what I mean? I had to crowbar myself into every situation, you know, except for getting into Hawaii Public Radio today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but other than that, you know, I, I pretty much have to just hammer my way into things. And so it has been my life's goal to write, direct, and produce movies, to tell stories, really. That's just what I've always loved since I was around the age of nine. And I went through some dark times in my late teens and my 20s and in my early 30s. And then I sort of came out of that and I survived. And that just gave me a whole new, fresh perspective on life. And I've just been giving it all I've got, you know. And, and then a lot of people have come along the way and, and they've seen how hard I'm working and they like the stuff that I make. And they've given me a shot. And I had this little two-minute short film because I had a bunch of work. I had made a bunch of stuff over the years. And then I was like, you know, I'm just going to make this thing. And I told my wife, I'm going to spend $3,000 making this short film. You know, at the time, I was working on Hawaii Five-0. And I said, you know, if you go up to somebody, because I was always directors and, and actors coming in, mm-hmm. and, and I would go and work on Jurassic World, and I'd go and work on all these different shows. And I'm like, I'm always running into these people, right? I'm just going to like have my little, I'm going to have my short film on my phone. And then, you know, if you go up to somebody and say, he got 15 minutes, nobody's got 15 minutes. You got five minutes, seven minutes, nobody's really got that. But nobody, I don't think, at the time, I, I didn't think that nobody could say, no, I don't have two minutes, right? If you don't have two minutes for somebody, then you're, then you're just kind of being a jerk, you know what I mean? And so that's what I did. And every director that came into Y50, every actor, I didn't even know these people, the, the producers, the writers, I would just go around showing my little short film. I say, hey man, and, and, and that was a way to like, at least plant a seed in people's heads right. that I made movies and I had some talent and I had the balls to walk up into people's offices and just show people my work. And, that, and that's really what I did. And then, you know, my dad was doing this and then my dad gave me a shot. But a lot of people say, oh, Nepo baby or nepotism or whatever it is. But I'm so grateful for the opportunity. But I still have to do the work. You know what I mean? I still got to go through the process. I still had to put in many years of like proving that I had this really just the stamina and the follow through to finish. And so, you know, one thing hopefully leads to another thing. Right. I finish this and then hopefully I can level up and just keep leveling up and, and I'll be scraping my way through it until my dying day, probably. Let's talk about the film. Kangaroo Kids. Yeah. What was it like to work together on the film? Let me back up just a hair. So I won't mention what state we were in. So I have produced 11 movies in this state. They have a kangaroo zoo there. And I thought to myself, boy, what a nice family film you can make being at this place and just not one or two kangaroos i mean like 50 60 kangaroos and with all kind of other camels and blah 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 blah. this is in middle america so me and another guy named ryan liske we wrote the script and then you got to go walk around and shake hands hi sir can you write a check to make my dreams come true and he goes, oh, well, tell me about it. Well, here's a tax and credit, and you're going to get that back. What about the other two-thirds? Ah, we do a television sale, we do a DVD sale, we do a streaming deal, and then it'll it'll accumulate. you got to make these movies for a price, number one, because the big boys, they don't allow any of us guys in right now. So I got the guy. I said, son, read the script. He rewrote it. Which was a miracle that he got the guy, right? That was him going around hustling with a poster of an unmade movie. Yeah. And, wow. fate, and I had two of them. <laughs> and fate just had it where this guy walked by and an angel waved her yeah. wand on the guy's head and and he said, I'd like to make, make that, that movie. movie. 
I don't know. I can't ever t- name of, of a time where anybody has told that story in Hollywood history. It just doesn't happen like yeah. that. Anyway, yeah. sorry. So here we go. You know, we do Kangaroo Kids. And Fidei made a movie that he remembers growing up and watching. The movie is a lot simpler in the very beginning. But as we got along, you know, there's all kinds of things going on, man, in this movie. And, and we're, we're proud of it. Kangaroo Kids. And so these are for families. These are for family films. And it was interesting because I was on Chief of War, and I was super grateful. You know, he came and he said, because I remember this movie, and I said, he's like, well, I want you to read this Kangaroo Kids script, you know. And at first, at first I was like, oh, that sounds terrible. You know, you know what I mean? I just was like, I just, I, that was just my, my initials, like, you know, sort of like, I just saw this other sort of movie in my in my head, and then... And then I read the script, and I'm super grateful for it, you know, because I said, I don't really know how I would make that movie, right? I don't know how I could do that, you know, but I, I have an idea. And he said, no, yeah, 30 days or something like that. And then I took the script, and I walked around a lot, and I listened to a lot of music, and I had some big ideas, and then I'd take two days to pitch it to my dad. And I'm grateful that we were able to do a lot of the things that I wanted to do, which was basically make it more of in the line of like a classic sort of film that that wasn't pinned down to a certain time that would age gracefully Mm -hmm. that for 40 years from now it's not about things that don't exist anymore and the fashion isn't like you know something that looks odd but it all still feels cool right now and to give it a nice balance of humor action heart adventure because my biggest fear is to be boring my biggest fear is for the audience to, to not be engaged, right? So I'm tr- always trying to like either do suspense, give them some humor. If I'm doing a little bit of action, try, try, try to throw some humor in there and then and then hold the whole thing together with, with heart. You know what I mean? And try to keep revealing new plot points in order to keep the audience guessing so that they want to keep turning the page. And then, of course, just to make sure that the whole thing makes sense, you know, because I will tell you right now, it's an epic movie. <laughs> it really is. It's a it's a small with wonderful animals. Yeah, it's a big sort of epic film with a ton of characters, and it's got a big plot, and it, it delivers. It it delivers the goods. I don't know how else to to describe it. It's it's a lot of fun. I gotta wrap up. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so uh, much. But thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed talking to you guys. Listen, this is a five-hour interview. I've never been. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. God bless. That was father and son filmmaking duo Branscombe Richmond and Fairai Richmond talking to HBR's Russell Subiano. Their new family film, Kangaroo Kids, made its world premiere at Ward Theater this past Wednesday. It will be available to watch on the new Sunstream streaming platform starting on Christmas Day. We'll have a link on the conversation page of our website later today. And that is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we'll be taking the holiday off, but we'll be back on Tuesday. Thoughts about the season? Hopes for the new year? Maybe peace on earth? Record something on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of the HPR website, or look for us wherever you tune in for podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Mark Liddell. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Have a Merry Christmas on Monday, and then join us on Tuesday and pick up the conversation. Thank you.